This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an ethical and eloquent life. So I can't believe it's taken me this long to have Dr. Michael Clapper on the show. He is such an amazing spokesperson for a plant-based diet. He is so caring, compassionate, smart, and well-versed not only in all the scientific evidence for a plant-based diet, but also really clear on the environmental consequences of the way we're eating now. He calls the paleo movement a diet of death and the ethical consequences, which are, which are not trivial. So before we get to the interview, a couple of items of business. First of all, you can still download the report, The Cheat Day Blues. If you go to plantyourself.com slash cheat day, that's C-H-E-A-T-D-A-Y, all one word. And the idea is there's a lot of diet protocols out there that include a cheat day, a day once a week or once a month where you can just you know go hog wild, do whatever you want, And because you're doing it rarely or because you're cramming it all in in a certain period, it's not supposed to have much of an effect on your overall, you know, weight loss or health goals. And there's some evidence to support that, but I think a cheat day is a terrible idea for for lots of other reasons. And the question is, is raised, if we don't have a cheat day, then how do we let off steam? How do we commit to a way of eating if we don't think we can commit to it 100% for the rest of our lives. So in the Cheat Day Blues Report, I talk about why I think cheat days are a bad idea and give you several empowering alternatives so that you don't have to say, okay, from now on, I'm going to eat perfectly for the rest of my life, which may not be realistic. And you don't go into it with this feeling of, well, the moment that I have a tiny screw up, then it's all over. So again, plantyourself.com slash cheat day. Second item of business, Josh and I are reopening the Big Change program in January 2018 for another either three-month or full year, depending on which program you select. Keep an eye out. We haven't opened it up quite yet, but in the next week or so, we'll be letting you know. It'll probably start the third week in January, so it'll give you plenty of time to um, to make those New Year's resolutions and decide if you'd like a year's worth of support from, from me and Josh and from the Big Change community. All right, let's talk about today's show. Dr. Michael Clapper has practiced nutrition-based medicine at True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, and he's very well known on the speaking circuit and for his videos Um, looking at various health conditions, um, at fasting. And he's really one of the world's most eloquent, convincing, passionate, and persistent advocates of a plant-based diet. Um, He studied the health effects, the environmental ramifications, and the psychological aspects of eating meat and junk food. And he's really good at putting even this most complex science in totally accessible terms. So, For example, here's how he explains the vast majority of chronic disease in the Western world. He says, we're putting diesel fuel in a gas engine. (laughs) Wow, that's so simple, powerful, and inarguable. So we talk about his journey, his medical journey, uh, his ethical journey, 
And at the end, we talk about the, the next phase. He's leaving True North in January, and he's got a really exciting new project that I believe will, will change the world. So without further ado, Dr. Michael Clapper, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Yeah, I haven't seen you in, in person in a couple of years since, uh, right. since the, uh, the vegan cruise. Right, that's true. Um, so, but I've been, you know, following your work, absorbing your materials. I got a couple of your, of your DVDs. Thank and you. so there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that I would love to, to explore with you. But first, for, for folks, uh, for the three people out there who don't know who you are and what you do, can you kind of give us uh, a little bit of background? Sure. Uh, I am a classically trained Western physician, graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. I've had postgraduate training in internal medicine, surgery, anesthesiology, orthopedics uh, at the University of British Columbia Hospitals and obstetrics at University of California in San Francisco. Uh, for the first, I've been a doc for 46 years. Uh, for the first 10 years, I was doing basically blood and guts uh, medicine in the emergency rooms, operating rooms, urgent care clinics. Uh, but for the past 35 years, my focus has been trying to keep people out of hospitals and off of operating tables uh, because I found myself dealing with a small group of grim diseases, obesity, clogged arteries, diabetes, high blood pressure, and a host of inflammatory diseases, which has, has become very clear in recent decades is largely due to the Western diet uh, that sends a wave of cooked animal protein, hydrogenated oils, refined sugars, dairy protein, a host of uh, associated chemicals through the bloodstream hour after hour, and it causes, it plays the major role in these diseases. And you get someone on a whole food plant-based diet, uh, lo and behold, these diseases go away, and the body turns back into a normal healthy body, and who doesn't need the services of people like me. So for the past eight years, I've been on the staff at True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, about an hour north of San Francisco, uh, where we do exactly this. We feed uh, folks who come to us from around the world with all these classic diseases, feed them a uh, whole food plant-based diet, and we send them to cooking classes and do food demos and show them videos so they can make this food at home and so they don't have to come back and see us again. We're trying to put ourselves out of business. And it's been the most satisfying uh, eight years of uh, my medical career to see all these fearsome diseases that I was told were relentlessly progressive, the clogged arteries, the high blood pressure, diabetes. It's from the wrong fuel. Uh, we've been putting diesel fuel in a gasoline-burning engine, uh, so to speak, <laughs> with our bodies. And you put them on the right plant-based fuel like we were designed to run on. And it's just humbling and, and so inspiring to see these fearsome diseases uh, melt away. The obesity starts to, to melt off. The arteries open up. The high blood pressure comes down. The joints stop hurting. The skin clears up. The asthmatic lungs stop wheezing. The migraine headaches go away. And people get their lives back. So uh, uh, for the past eight years, I've been the happiest doc I know. And uh, now I'm off to uh, uh, spread the word to my colleagues uh, to uh, help uh, get the word out. And so it becomes a standard part of medical care in America today. Cool. So one thing I noticed, I, I like to take notes so I can do a write-up afterwards. And when I was trying to write down your CV, you listed the stuff much faster than I could write it down. So it sounds like you, 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 you've, you've memorized this list. It was a, I got surgery, anesthesiology, obstetrics. Is that normal to, do, to go in for so many different fields? Or would most doctors 
you know, kind of pick one or two and kind of stay there? Good, very perceptive question. This is back in the mid 1970s. Uh, there were no family practice residencies, or they were just in their embryonic form. Uh, and I was uh, headed off to a remote hospital in the North American Indian Reservation. And I had only had one year of internal medicine for training. And I knew if I was alone one night in some isolated emergency room and someone had come in and put a chainsaw into their leg, I really didn't know what I was doing. And so before I went to the uh, Indian Reservation, I went back uh, to the university teaching hospitals and I went to the head of surgery and I said, I need to learn how to open an abdomen and take out an appendix. Can I do six months of general surgery? He said, okay. I went to the head of orthopedics, said I need to do three months of orthos to deal with initial fracture care. He said, okay. I went to the uh, anesthesia folks. They had a six-month uh, training program in anesthesia, so I did that. And um, then I had to go down to San Francisco to do six months of obstetrics. And so I kind of assembled my own postgraduate uh, family practice residency, uh, crept myself with all the arrows in my quiver I thought I would need, and headed out to the Indian Reservation for three exciting years of frontier medicine where I used every one of those skills that I picked up during that time. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what that training was about. And it's helped me even now in my, uh, in my dealing with patients with nutritional diseases. I know what's happening in their bellies and in their arteries from my uh, acute medical training. So very glad that I had that part of my education. Uh, was the, uh, the, the time on the Indian Reservation something that you chose or part of uh, the, the deal for your oh, mission? No, no, I chose it. And, uh, it was Tell exciting. me about that. Where, where, where was it and what was right. it like? Yeah, this is the Hoopa Indian Reservation up in Northern California in the Redwood Country, just south of the Oregon border, uh, along the, where the Trinity River flows through Hoopa Valley on its way to join the Klamath. And uh, there were about 3,000 Hoopa Indians in the valley, 3,000 loggers, and they kept the local knife and gun club pretty active on Saturday nights. Uh, they, uh, they were very busy emergency room scenes there. And, it, and that was my first hint of uh, the degenerative diseases, the obesity, the clogged arteries. But back then, I didn't know what to tell these people. You ought to lose some weight. And I'd fiddle with their insulin doses. And, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand what I was looking at. And it got so uh, disconcerting to me that I left general practice. I went back to uh, training to become an anesthesiologist. Uh, I, did, I didn't want to deal with my failure in trying to help these people. Uh, some events happened in the operating room during my anesthesia residency that made it very clear that it's the it's largely the animals these people are reading is what put them on that table with the striker like, salt going up their chest. And, yeah, like how how did how yeah. did you start to put that together? And this is, uh, I guess, in the in the early eighties, maybe early eighties. Very good. Um, Yes, uh, I was on the cardiovascular anesthesia service at Vancouver General Hospital, and day after day I'm putting patients to sleep and watching surgeons open their chests and open their coronary arteries and pull this yellow guck out of their arteries uh, that looked like chicken fat and cow fat. Uh, and then one day it dawned on me, there's a good reason why it looks like chicken fat. It is chicken fat and cow fat and uh, the fat of other slow animals the man was eating. And... Uh, and my dad was already showing signs of clogged arteries. He already was showing he has a cold leg and he was getting angina. I knew I was going to be laying on that operating table with that striker saw going up my sternum. And, and I didn't want that at all. And, and uh, Dr. Dean Ornish was starting to do his work on reversing heart disease. Uh, there were already studies on the book from the 70s about a vegan diet reversing clogged arteries from Dr. Frey Ellis uh, in Great Britain. 
And the lights were really flashing, and I really need to change my diet. And that was uh, one of the main factors that uh, made me move on to a plant-based diet. And when I did, my body responded beautifully. A 20-pound spare tire of fat around my belly melted away. My high blood pressure came down. My high cholesterol came down. And my, uh, I felt great waking up in a nice, lean body every day. And um, there I was listening to surgeons complaining about their taxes and their golf games. And nobody was really talking to these patients about what put them on that operating table when, I, when it was becoming very clear to me that you know, it was from their diet. Uh, so much so that I eventually left anesthesia. I, I didn't want to spend my time putting people to sleep. I wanted to go back to general practice and help them wake up. So... Uh, <laughs> So I did. I went back to general practice in Florida. I started a nutritionally based practice. I found some people who could teach vegan cooking, uh, and I sent my patients uh, to these people who would teach them how to make these wonderful salads and hearty soups and, and vegetable stews and bean burritos. And the same thing would happen with them. I, they would get leaner. And I not only could get them off their blood pressure medications, I had to get them off their blood pressure medications. They'd stand up, their blood pressure would drop, and they'd pass out. And, and the first time I, I told the patient, stop your blood pressure pills, they're too strong for you, I thought there'd be a puff of smoke, and the, the ghost of my internal medicine professor would appear saying, what did you just say? Stop his medicine. You know this is lifetime medication. Hand in your stethoscope. You're no longer a doctor. But, of course, nothing like that happened, and I knew I was right. These people did not need the pills once they no longer had the disease of high blood pressure. Same thing with the diabetic patient. First time I, I stopped insulin on a patient, I not only had, uh, not only could stop, but I had to stop. He was going hypoglycemic. The man was no longer diabetic. He had melted off 30 pounds of fat. He no longer had insulin resistance, and he didn't have diabetes. He didn't need to be on insulin. And most of these diseases go away. You know, so, and, so yeah. So as you were as you were making this transition, so personally, you 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 started out, you started seeing these studies. You you did the experiment on yourself. Were there periods of of sort of holding your breath and doubt and like you 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 must have been one of the you must have been the only person you knew personally who was doing this for a long time, right? Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, but there was another factor as well. Uh, I had spent. Uh, much of my fourth year in medical school uh, on, Saturday, on Saturday nights in the trauma unit of Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And I saw the worst of what humans do to each other, the horrible violence. And I knew I wanted to get the violence out of my life. And so I became uh, a student of the Indian Saints and Gandhi and folks who were trying to lead a nonviolent life. And I wanted to become a real man of peace, as hokey as that might sound. And uh, one night I was uh, with, for dinner with a friend and uh, pontificating about how much I wanted to become a man of peace uh, while I was polishing off a 14-ounce porterhouse steak at the local keg and cleaver. And he looked at me with great compassion and said, well, that's all very nice, Michael, but you want to be, get the violence out of your life, you might want to start with that piece of animal flesh on your plate because in satisfying your desire for the taste of meat in your mouth, you are paying for the death of the animal and for the next one in line in the slaughterhouse. And when he said that, my mind immediately came up with all the rationales. Oh, well, they're, cal they're dead already, and that's what they raised them for. 
But before the words could escape my lips, a little voice on my shoulder said, you know, he's right. He's right. <laughs> and I had done much of my growing up on my uncle's dairy farm in Wisconsin. I saw the cow shot in the head when they no longer could give milk. I chopped the heads off chicken. I knew what it really took to get meat on the table. I knew the violence inherent in every piece of meat. And at this point, the light was flashing so uh, brightly uh, in my mind and heart. So between the incident in the restaurant and what I was seeing in the operating room, there, there, was, there was no choice. Uh, I just couldn't. Uh, when I went up to pay for the steak dinner, I, I felt complicit in a crime when I pulled that $20 bill out of my table, out of my pocket. And I knew that was the end of my meat eating. And uh, to complete the story, uh, I, uh, as the days went by after that incident, I had been raised in a Jewish household after World War II, and I was very aware of the pictures of the lampshades made out of the skins of the Jews, and and I looked at my leather shoes and my leather belt and my leather wallet, and they looked positively cadaverous, and uh, and I didn't want to put them on my feet or in my around my waist, so I went out the back of the house, dug a hole, put my leather shoes and belt and wallet in there, and filled in the hole. As I stepped back in the hole, I, I apologized to the animals because well, if, if you don't know, you don't know. But once you know, mm-hmm. you know, they say once you look behind the curtain, you can't pretend you don't know what's behind the curtain. And the, and the curtain was ripped down. And so I said, sorry, I didn't know. And I went out and bought a hemp wallet and uh, leather shoes. And, uh, and that was the end of it. I didn't say anything to anybody. But a a few months later, I was mentioning this to a friend of mine, and what this process I had gone through, and she says, "Oh, you've become you've become a vegan." I did. I had never heard the word. I had no idea. Uh, oh, okay. I guess I have. Uh, but that that's how I wound up there. But by then, I knew I was uh, leaving the operating room. It was just so, so glaring, and uh, and general practice suddenly became much more interesting, and inviting, and I haven't looked back since. I've been in GPs last. 35 years, I guess I've always been a general practitioner. And uh, it's the most exciting pro- uh, position for me. Ironically, they are just a GP, you know, like you're the lowest man on the totem pole. But I, actually, this gives me the best platform as a physician to talk to the surgeons and talk to the cardiologists and talk to the dermatologists and talk to the rheumatologists, talk to the gastroenterologists, because they're all looking at the same disease. It's what your patients are eating. And it's bubbling up through all these organ systems. And the cardiologist sees the clogged arteries and the internist sees the high blood pressure and the rheumatologist sees the inflamed joints and the dermatologist sees the psoriasis. The gastroenterologist sees the colitis. The psychiatrist sees the depression. They're all looking at the same disease. It's the Western diets become so toxic and bubbles up through all these organ systems causing these diseases. But it's the food. And, and you put them on a whole food, plant-based diet, and these diseases correct themselves. When, uh, when you stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer, the headaches go away, you know? And same thing. Stop injuring your tissues, and they, they heal. And I tell my patients I want to see you in two places, in the natural food store and the bike pass. Other than that, I don't want to see you again. Go eat healthy food and go live a healthy life so you don't need the services of people like me. Of course, if they need to see me, they can. But I really wish... People don't need the services of doctors. I'm trying to put myself out of business. Well, doctor means teacher, right? It does. Doctore in in the Latin means to teach. And that's what we do. And that's our most important role. And, And 
it's it's more than just working in a clinic. It's a matter of teachers teaching the community. We have used meat eating up as individuals and a society, no matter what role that hunting and meat eating and the mighty hunter played in our survival dim past, doesn't matter. At this point, seeing the cost to the earth and to people and to the animals of a flesh-centered diet, it's time to realize we have used meat eating up, time to turn the page. We've used fishing up. We are strip mining the oceans. We are clear cutting the oceans. We've used fishing up. We're being called upon as individuals and as a species to evolve ourselves to the next level of a plant-based diet. If we do that, we will heal. The planet will heal. Our future will be viable. If we don't do this at this time, uh, our prospects are are very grim indeed. So it's time to teach uh, big time. So it's interesting that you grew up partly on a dairy farm. That puts you in very good company with a lot of other plant-based. It turns out, yes. <laughs> Dr. Campbell, Dr. Russellton, yes. Yeah, Dr. I think Dr. Dr. Barnard, too. Dr. Barnard, yeah, his dad had a ranch in South Dakota, right. Yeah, I'm worried that we're going to raise a generation of vegans that are going to become, you know, meat advocates. <laughs> you got to, got to grow up in a dairy farm. No, you don't. Absolutely not. <laughs> And I just came back from a lecture tour in Australia, and I gave lectures in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Auckland, Brisbane, Fungaray. And the response was so different than in years past, before there'd be six vegetarians in the basement of the Y, and, uh, and the newspaper reports would be cynical about scrawny vegans and not getting enough protein. Just the opposite. We had 250, 300 people in every one of these audiences. About a quarter of them were health professionals. I asked for shows of hands. And the, the interest, the openness to this, and I didn't pull any punches. I got a slide saying to my fellow health professionals, it's time we stop pretending that what our patients are eating has no bearing on these diseases they are bringing to us. And it's time to open to the role of nutrition in both the cause and and treatment of these diseases. And not only were the audiences positive, but the press, the New Zealand Herald and the, and the, and the Sydney newspaper, their articles were very respectful. Uh, I, I was interviewed on Auckland Morning AM TV, and they can be really snarky and, uh, and uh, negative. Tell us, tell us about plant-based nutrition, doctor. What, what diseases do you find them useful for? Take us through a day of plant-based eating. I, I was, it was such a validation of the truth of our, the message as well as the, how much the world has changed, how open it's becoming to this message. And there were a lot of young doctors and medical students in there as well. That was really hopeful. So after all these years of slogging away at the coal face, you know, the wheels are starting to turn, and I'm, I'm getting enthusiastic and excited. Uh, good things are happening. Right. So now when you, you've... Um you know, done a lot of these DVDs and talks and you're kind of, you know, I, I look upon you as one of the folks like Dr. Greger, who really has a, the bird's eye view of, of the whole gamut of research. And I, there's, there's a lot of, like I'm, I'm talking to different groups about doing interventions and I, I always get stuck with like the, you know, Association of Nutrition and Dietetics, like this, you know, the health center will say, well, our, our diet is compliant with that. Like if you if you go into an audience of of non believers, 
Like what, what are the key points or studies or like what's, what's your, the, your best ammunition who hits, you know, first, second, third and cleanup in your, in your presentation. Cause there's so much stuff out there and I find myself getting overwhelmed by it. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> It's really important, if you'll let me riff on this a little bit, for people to understand the message of Dr. Milton Mills. Um, the issue is the true nature of our body and the, and, the tr- and the optimal nature of our diet. Our simian ancestors, the ape family, has been on this planet for 150 million years. Our gorilla and bonobo cousins are up in the trees right now eating leaves and fruits like they've been doing for tens of millions of years. We didn't suddenly change our physiology in the last two million years. Our saliva still contains starch digesting enzymes. Our, uh, our, we have, still have long intestines. We still don't have claws on our, our fingers. And so I say, first of all, understand we are plant digesting creatures. If you have any question, I urge you to go to YouTube, find the uh, find the uh, presentation by Dr. Milton Mills is man a, an herbivore or an omnivore, and he will make it very clear, extremely convincing presentation. We are herbivores. That then puts these diseases into perspective, because when people say, "Well, we 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 can adapt to eating meat," no, we can't. That's what these diseases are about. Uh, it's the wrong fuel. It's like putting diesel fuel in a gasoline burning engine and the, the pipes clog up. And in fact, to make it real clear, I use this automotive analogy. I say, look, if you get a brand new Ford uh, car or Chevrolet that's got a nice V6 gasoline burning engine and you've got high test octane gasoline in there, rum, runs great. You can add a little bit of kerosene. Diesel fuel is kerosene. You can add a little bit of kerosene to the to your gas to gas tank. The car will still run okay. You won't notice it. A little more kerosene, yeah, probably still okay. A little more kerosene. Now it's running a little rough. A little more kerosene. Now you got black smoke coming out of the exhaust pipe. A little more kerosene. Now it's coughing and sputtering. You add a little more kerosene. The gas line cakes up and the engine stops. It was always a gasoline-burning engine. It, it didn't adapt to the fuel. It, not for one moment was it not a gasoline-burning engine. You, all you did was pollute the fuel with some other kind of engine's fuel, and you caused malfunction. We are plant-burning organisms, plant-digesting, metabolizing organisms. We are never not plant-burning organisms. You can pollute the fuel with animal flesh and dairy fat and all that stuff, and a little bit probably can get away with it, a little bit more and get away with it. But you start adding significant amounts of animal flesh or go all the way over like the paleo folks do and eat the diet of a mountain lion or your house cat, uh, you're going to cause disease. And I've got, I have a presentation on the paleo diet, and these folks are setting themselves up for an epidemic. Of, of clogged arteries, diabetes, colon cancer, autoimmune diseases, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. This is a diet of death. These, this pendulum is going to swing back real hard on this diet. Plus, it's, it's 
destructive to the plant and animals on a level that uh, borders on grotesque. Um, but so, so yeah, to, yeah. to to kind of carry on that metaphor, so you know the the darlings of the paleo movement are you know the Inuit, and I read recently that they have like an adaptive gene that So it's basically saying so there's all these there's all these different vehicles out there, and some of them can handle the kerosene slightly better than others. So after a while, we'll just drive those. We're still right. So it's it's right. still causing problems, but it's just taking a little bit longer to cause those problems. Perhaps, but go go to Dr. Uh, McDougall's website, look at his news. He wrote some beautiful articles on this, and it turns out when they dig up the uh, the old bodies and, and mummies from the ice, uh, these folks had terrible vascular disease. And the and the traders who first contacted the Inuits, they noticed that there's no, not a lot of old people here uh, because they don't live that long. And, and as far as nature goes, she just wants you to make it to your 20s, your 30s, uh, have kids, raise them to reproductive age. She's through with you. And uh, nature doesn't really need us around to in our 50s and 70s and, and 90s. And, and you eat a lot of animal flesh, you, you won't be around in your 60s and 90s. And the fact is, you know, it's there's a couple of old canards. Oh, the Inuit eat meat, and the, but they get these diseases. They get bad osteoporosis. They get bad blood vessel disease. It's not it's not a healthy diet for them. You can live on it for 30, 40 years, but you ain't going to have a long, healthy, disease-free life, which is what people really want. It, it's not a, a fit human diet. It's a survival for until you can lurch into reproductive years. But but that's uh, all it's good for. And we we need to advance beyond. We know better than this at this point. Okay. So you give your talk and you talk about uh, Dr. Mill's work. And he's he's yeah. been on this podcast a couple of times and he's good. A, a favorite. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, yeah, but mm-hmm. all this, like the American Heart Association has been lying to us. It turns out that saturated fat is not bad for us and that the cholesterol myth is a myth. So then, then we're, what's your next move? Right, yeah. If you take the time to really look at these studies, and I invite them to go to nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Greger has been really eloquent uh, in dealing with the saturated fat issue and the cholesterol issue. And there's all sorts of ways to skew the studies. If you give someone a a high-fat, high-cholesterol diet and saturate their cholesterol receptors, uh, if you um, so, then are walking around with high cholesterol. If you give them one more egg yolk, you don't notice a change in their cholesterol. So they say, "Ah, see, eggs don't raise your cholesterol level." And then the the saturated fat thing. The I invite people to go to the website. Dr. Brenda Davis, she did a beautiful deconstruction of this whole rationale that has been roundly condemned by most nutritional scientists, these guys who came up with a statistical manipulation that said saturated fats don't raise cholesterol. They certainly do. You give, uh, especially plant-based folks, give them a bunch of saturated fat, you'll see their their cholesterol skyrocket. But but saturated fat incites inflammation, no question about it, and creates insulin resistance, no question about it. And there's lots and lots of studies that show that. That, Those are two non-starters. If any... Any constituent that that incites uh, inflammation and insulin resistance, uh, not something that I want to ingest on a regular basis. That said, yes, there's saturated fats in avocados, there's saturated fat in, in walnuts, and I, you know, and I have a small handful of walnuts every day or two, um, a little piece of avocado is not going to cause any harm. But people who eat 
flesh and high-fat foods, um, eggs and coconut oil with every meal thinking, ooh, saturated fat, that's my savior. I'm afraid they're going to wind up uh, with, with terrible diseases from clogged arteries to diabetes to inflammatory states of all kinds. Uh, well, look at our anatomy. Back in ancient times, saturated fats were a rarity. You, you found a, uh, you know, you found berry bushes. Most Cal this whole paleo thing is a myth. Most calories, uh, you know, first of all, most hunts were unsuccessful. Most time the guys came back empty-handed. Uh, if they brought a carcass back into camp, it rotted within days. There's no refrigeration. When you examine the fecal droppings of the Paleolithic folks, uh, you see, saw they ate massive amounts of fiber, 150 grams a day. Look up the work of Dr. Nathaniel Dominey, uh, the anthropologist from Dartmouth. Uh, and you'll see that the, the truth is most of the calories brought into the Paleolithic camp were gathered by the women who spent all day pulling up roots and tubers and starchy corms and nuts and berries and edible grasses. Once again, the women got us through the tough times. And this whole idea of the mighty hunters, we ate meat with every meal, it, it nonsense. It's a rarity in, in the diet. We were starchivores then, we're starchivores now. You can shoot holes in all these things, and it doesn't make sense for us. Look at our bodies. We're not carnivorous apes, no matter what the paleo folks tell us. We're not homo carnivorous. And and I'm afraid these young folks, uh, they're... It's going to be just a matter of time till the chest pain shows up and the blood in the stool and the breast lump shows up and the trouble pain and the prostate cancer. And they'll say, oops, uh, gee, something about that diet didn't seem right. But they'll have earned a bad disease by that time. I urge people to get off that paleo train. It is carrying you to a place you do not want to go. What do you think the, the, the time frame is for that? Because there's a lot of people who are promoting paleo who mm – -hmm. On, on the surface, look like they're in great shape. Yeah. Right? There's, right. there's a lot of people who do, you know, YouTube channels and write articles, and I go, you know, I would, like, give my left big toe to look that good. Yeah, right. There's no question that when people shift, especially from the standard diet, um, to a diet uh, uh, that the, that's being recommended in the paleo camp, uh, they're going to do some good things to their nutrition intake. And there's a few things that I totally in agreement with the paleo folks. They say no caveman ever ground uh, wheat into flour and made donuts and muffins. And so they're down on flour products. They're right. Yay, paleo. They say no caveman ever milked a dairy cow. They're down on dairy products. They're right. Yay, paleo. And they say no caveman ever squeezed the fat out of olives and poured liquid fat um, from olives all over their food. Yeah, so they're down on liquid oils. Yay, they're right. Well, you eliminate the flour, the baked goods, and the dairy products, and the oils from your diet, man, you're going to trim down. You're going to do good things for you. I'm all for that. Yay, paleo. They got the right idea there. And so, yeah, people look more trim and buff. But <clears throat> when you elect to put animal flesh down your gullet and eggs two, three times a day, the food we eat determines the bacteria that live in our gut. You, you eat sugar, you're going to summon up sugar-eating bacteria. You drop animal flesh, salmon steaks and chicken and beef, two, three times a day down your gut. You're eating a large amount of molecules called carnitine and choline. That's going to summon up a, a population of bacteria that eat carnitine and choline. And when that next salmon steak or chicken breast comes down, they don't care about you. They're, they're going to turn that carnitine and choline into a molecule called trimethylamine. So what? Well, your liver is going to turn that into trimethylamine oxide. This is a molecule from hell. This drives cholesterol into the artery walls. 
and and they may look fit on the outside, but inside their arteries, evil things are most likely happening. These are the guys who drop dead on the treadmill of the gym at 49, and people say, oh, he looks so healthy. But in the issue is how health, how old are your arteries? And if you're caking them up and inflaming them like a diet full of meat and saturated fat will do, you're an old, old man on the inside. I don't care how ripped and buff your muscles look on the outside. Uh, what's really happening in these guys' colon walls? How many of them are cooking up a colon cancer by smearing animal protein on that colon wall hour after hour after hour from this diet? How many of these guys are cooking up a uh, prostate cancer from all the IGF-1, the, the insulin-like growth factor one that they eat, that their liver puts out with these big bolts of protein uh, that come in with the meat center diet? Uh, the the hormones and the growth factors in these animals that uh, that are fed to increase their growth factor. What is that doing? Uh, we all make a few hundred cancer cells every day. You want to be eating a bunch of growth factors uh, from from the chicken and from the beef. Uh, all meat, even organic meat, comes from the slaughterhouse, and and. Every cutting surface in the slaughterhouse is covered with the bacteria from the guts of these animals. And so there's a thin layer of bacteria on every piece of chicken and beef and lamb that you buy. And when these bacteria die, their cell walls create a nasty molecule called endotoxin. Ooh, bad stuff. This stuff injures your artery walls, sets off inflammation, releases histamine, sets off blood clotting, makes your gut leaky. And food proteins start leaking into your into your gut because these paleo folks are eating endotoxin two, three times a day. And that's going to set them up for rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune diseases. <clears throat> Only animal flesh has another molecule, a neuraminic acid called NU5GC. This stuff sets off inflammation all over the body. You see it in coronary artery lesions and rheumatoid arthritis, joint tissue. And our paleo friends are eating new 5GC three times a day. This fuel is a hot lava flow. And we're understanding now through the science called nutrigenomics that food brings in not only nutrition, it brings in information. Every meal that you eat, molecules of that meal, every bite, Within minutes, molecules of that food are washing through every cell in your body where your DNA lies unfolded. And these food molecules wash through your cells and they play your DNA like a piano. And they turn genes on, they turn genes off. They turn enzymes on, they turn enzymes off. Every meal changes who we are on a molecular, cellular level. Hippocrates was right on a level he couldn't have begun to understand, let food be your medicine. Every meal changes us. And if you are flooding your tissues with cooked animal protein and new 5GC and endotoxin, uh, what genes are you turning on? Uh, and what are you spawning in these tissues that we're, are not supposed to be dealing with these kind of molecules? And this pendulum is going to swing back hard. I've just seen my first colon cancer in a paleo lady. It's not going to be my last, I'm, I, I fear. And, and you watch, and, and I'll put a $50 bill on the table that we're going to be seeing medical stuff, paleo diet associated with rheumatoid arthritis, paleo diet associated with type 2 diabetes, paleo diet associated with and pick a disease because it's not the fuel that this simian body is supposed to run on. Right. I gasped inside a little bit when you said that we're that this nutrigenomics is that we're food brings in information. Absolutely. Um, 
Because you know, I'm I'm a I'm a gardener. Yeah. And and so I, I I've developed in my own mind a, a, a kind of a spiritual relationship with like like plants and they they want to work with us. Like yeah. I, and I know I can't I can't speak to this scientifically, and I'm probably losing a lot of credibility, but. And I, and I I don't know how we can even study this or talk about it, but since you mentioned you you were interested in sort of Indian spirituality, there's something there about that that it's 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 not just in, it's not just the nutrition. It's like you're 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 eating a book. You're either eating, you know, some form of of like positive, like a blessing for you, like the plant wants you to consume it, versus. <laughs> The animal that doesn't want to be eaten by us. It's, yeah, it's not a crazy analogy, Howard. There's there's a validity to that, and and the the biochemical equivalent of that is again our paleo folks eating cooked animal flesh are are flooding their body with carcinogens and inflammatory molecules and and insulin blockers and and these molecules that cause. Um, uh, imbalance in the body and and they keep it in their bloodstream meal after meal, day after day, week after week, month after month. And it, it, I have a picture of a hot lava stream in Hawaii and with all these contaminating, contaminating molecules. This is what your blood, you know, your blood should be bringing soothing, healing molecules and you turn your bloodstream into this hot lava stream that's flowing through your tissues, uh, you know, turning on genes that do want to be turning on. Um, but when you eat a whole whole food plant based diet, you're doing the the 180 degree opposite. You're flooding your tissues with these phytonutrients, these sulforaphanes, and and uh, various molecules that are antioxidant, that are stabilizing. And and in your in your genre, they as they these molecules flow through your tissues, they send the chemical message to your tissues, basically. Calm down. Everything's okay. This is a normal function. Uh, uh, inflammation's not needed here. Uh, it really whispers a different chemical message to your tissues, and and it lets the the fearsome inflammatory processes just dissipate. Um, arteries relax. Uh, um, the inner membranes of bronchial tubes and arteries uh, uh, open up and blood flows better, urine flows better, and and you have to think even brains function better without inflammatory molecules. So it, it's not a crazy thought. The, the, the food is, our, you know, it changes who we are, and, and we have to stop pretending that it doesn't. And the people who uh, in psychiatry, they're, they're, they're uh, types of depression, and they talk about endogenous depression. The guy who says, "Gee, doc, I got a great life, a great wife, a great job. But why do I feel like jumping off a bridge?" And and most psychiatrists say, "Oh, well, you have a, a chemical imbalance. Take these SSRIs." I want to know. Since the food that we eat determines the microbes that live in our gut, and these microbes are not passive bystanders, they're, they're, they put out neurotransmitter molecules, they put out norepinephrine and dopamine and, and serotonin that flow up into our brain and change our brain chemistry, I want to ask this guy, what have you been eating? 
If he's been eating a bunch of meat and sugar and he spawned a bunch of bacterioides, bacteria in his gut, no wonder he's not feeling so good. And this is, a, yeah, it's a chemical imbalance, but he's causing it from an from a, you know, unhealthy diet. So we have to stop. Well, like, yeah, and again, it's a form of information sure. saying, boy, there's, you know, things are bad out there. Maybe and, and the things you've been eating are not real food. So maybe we better depress you to put you in your cave for a few days so you can fast and not go and do those things. Absolutely, yes. Maybe that's the message, but usually the guy goes out and gets another Dunkin' Donuts. But uh, but you're right. Ultimately, a good uh, nutritionally aware psychiatrist would ask the question that I ask every one of my patients. Take me through yesterday's eating day. What did you put in your mouth from morning till night? Take me through, through your eating day and listen to what he tells you, doctor, because that's probably where the problem lies. And if it's full of eggs and Snickers bars and, and burgers uh, and pizzas, then you got to start with that. You know, the, you can, may not be able to change his brain chemistry directly, but the, that you can change. And uh, we get him on a whole food plant-based diet for three weeks, six weeks, and have them back in and see if you don't have a different guy in front of you. I can't tell you, Howard, over the years, how many people uh, went to a plant-based diet for their blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever. But the, and by the way, I just started feeling so much better. I, uh, the, my, my, I wasn't so moody anymore. My kids like me better. And I'm thinking, yep, you know, of course, that should get in line too, just like the rest of your organs do. Your brain and your heart also get better, your spiritual heart. Sure, it changes you. Right. Now, one one thing that we see is, um, you know, sort of lapsed vegans, right? Like right. people who try it. And you, yep. you were part of a, a really long, in-depth study, right? Mm -hmm. Was it the vegan health study? Yep. Can you talk about that and why, you know, why it was um, initiated in the first place and what you were sure. looking for and what you found? Sure. Well, the reason I did it, uh, realizing... Again, um, a plant-based diet is really our life raft uh, as individuals and a society, and it's just right. Uh, we've just got to stop killing everything. I mean, we can't use killing as a solution to political problems, economic problems, and, and for our food. It's time for the killing to stop. And I'm really, you know, that man of peace is still in there, and I've never heard a carrot scream, you know, and it's time to, you know, stop killing these magnificent animals. And so, you know, so it's, that's my bias. Yes, I'm a vegan doc. I want that to succeed. And yet I run into, as you have, uh, quite a number of folks saying, you know, I, I tried to be a vegan one, didn't work for me. I, after a couple of weeks, I felt a little... I didn't have as much energy, and I was feeling a lot of sorts, and I started dreaming of salmon steaks and cheeseburgers, and, and then I ate some meat, and whoa, I feel better, boy, right, vegan, schmegan, man, I'm a carnivore, I'm a paleo guy, and I was hearing this so often that I said, what's going on here? I think they all got together and said, let's drive Dr. Clapper nuts and tell them we're all feeling better when we're eating meat. Or there's some, they're telling us something we need to listen to. There's some physiology behind this. What is going on? And here's what I think. Here's my theory, but um, I think it's, it's pretty close to, um, to, to being valid. I think it goes like this. 
uh, like everything else, our metabolism is tremendously influenced by uh, our earliest ye years uh, in this body. You know, if you want to train an Olympic gymnast, you find a little three or four year old kid and you bring him to gymnastics class. Well, us human beings in this society, at age six months uh, 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 six months old, the baby's still nursing at the breast, still. Uh, drinking out of the nursing bottle and with the best intentions in the world to, to nourish their baby your mother didn't know my mother didn't know but that jar of baby lamb baby chicken baby turkey is opened and from that point on three times a day animal flesh is slathered on that child's intestine all through infancy by age two or three or four they're in fast food restaurant eating their happy meals they've adopted a plant-based uh, an animal-based diet piece of animal muscle in the center of every meal three times a day well you put animal flesh down that frequently uh, in a developing child you're going to induce some changes our muscles make molecules like carnitine and creatine myoglobin your body your muscles make all you need but if it's coming in preformed in the food three times a day, what's that child's genes going to do? They're going to downregulate it. We don't have to make this stuff. It's coming in preformed. And it is. It's in the Western diet. It keeps the carnitine, creatine, myoglobin. And those three names are shorthand for probably hundreds of muscle-related nutrients that come in when you eat when you eat animal flesh. And as the years go by, you become dependent uh, upon the steady stream of these muscle-related nutrients. Not that you couldn't make it your own, uh, on your own, but uh, the body develops a dependency. Then at age, you know, and you do this for 10, 20, 30 years, uh, you know, you really downregulate your genes. It's called um, genetic imprinting. Uh, well, then at age 35 or 45, you tune into a Howard Jacobson podcast or you see forks over knives or you see what the health and the plant-based light goes on and yay for the animals, yay for your cholesterol. But what happens? Suddenly all those animal-based nutrients, all those muscle-based nutrients are gone. Now you, get, now you got to gear up your own production of these things right now. Most people can do it. Not that hard, but a significant numbers, I suspect, might take them a few weeks, few months to gear up their enzymes and wake up those silenced genes to start producing these uh, molecules. And along the way, they draw down on their own carnitine stored, own creatine, own muscle-related nutrient stores, and they don't feel so good. And then they eat a piece of meat, and all this preformed carnitine, creatine, myoglobin floods through their tissues. Aha! I'm, boy, I feel great. I'm a paleo guy. But what are we observing? What is this phenomenon? This is not normal human physiology. This is an acquired dependency produced by feeding animal flesh three times a day to a human infant while they're still developing their metabolic machinery. No advanced primate does this. No gorilla does this. No bonobo does this. feeds his animal, his young animal flesh at all, let alone three times a day. Uh, and... The kids who've been raised as vegans since birth, they don't have meat cravings. Their mouths don't water when they walk past a barbecue. This is, this is something we create 
by this bizarre flesh-based diet, which again is, is given to by the parents with all the love in, in their hearts. They don't know. Your mother didn't know. My mother didn't know. But we're creating this phenomenon, and then we say, aha, this is the natural state of man. No, it's not. Raise your child on plant-based foods. Uh, you won't run into this phenomenon, and that's what I think we're looking at. Wow. So, so is there anything we can do for those folks? Thank you. Absolutely. So what happens is that we just have to recognize that these folks might take a few months or, or a number of months to, to gear up their machinery, so you, you work with them. I tell my folks in the office who, who they come to True North, they do okay, but they, I'm going to eat meat twice a week. Okay, man, twice a week beats twice a day. You know, there's 21 meals in a week. If 19 of them were squeaky clean, whole plant-based, well, if all 21 were plant-based, but, but two of them had a little piece of animal flesh, I'd take that right now uh, compared to what we're doing. Everything would change for the better. So I say, fine, have it twice a week. I tell folks, Look at animal flesh like a very expensive vitamin tablet, if you become dependent on it, that's toxic in large amounts. You don't need handfuls of multivitamins. You don't need big slabs of steak. I tell them find the smallest amount of animal flesh. It's about the size of a deck of playing cards, produced in the least harmful way. I don't know what that means anymore. It's always harmful to the animals. But... Um, and eat it as seldom as you can. Have a little piece on Monday. Coast on that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, till you think you're by, I'm starting to crave it. Then have a little bit more. Coast on that as long as you can, four, five, six days. And start to start to widen out the intervals between ingesting the animal flesh. You're, and what you're talking about with withdrawal. Yeah. The same way you, would, you, you wouldn't withdraw somebody from an SSRI instantly. Suddenly. Or, exactly. or, su or suddenly take them off all of their insulin and humalog. Well said, doctor. Absolutely. That, that's exactly right. You got to give their genes time for that metabolic machinery to gear up. And so you taper them off. And, and what I hear, you know, the guy, I'm twice a week, I'm eating, okay. You see him back in the office two months later, well, well, we just eat it on Sundays. And then two months later, eh, I think we had it twice last <laughs> week, or, you know, twice last month. And then two months later, ah, eh, we stopped buying the stuff. You know, it just doesn't look appetizing. You know, people, if you want to, you can certainly get off it. So just got to be patient. But I would urge people, don't, uh, don't linger. Uh, move right along in, in getting that stuff out of your diet. All right. That reminds me of a talk I heard uh, Dr. Peter Goethe, of the, you know, the, the creator of the Cochrane Collaboration, uh -huh. gave on some of the, some of the, um, the pharmaceutical studies of uh, psych meds where the reason they were seeing positive results for the psych meds was that they were doing this cold turkey withdrawal. And so therefore the people who were withdrawing, you know, they would have people withdraw and people uh, not withdraw. And the people who withdrew had these terrible symptoms from, from kind of this, you know, in sure. uh, irresponsible sure. withdrawal. Yeah. That you, that right. I'm imagining that there's probably some studies of meat eaters that are doing the same thing and, and miss, uh, misinterpreting the results. Indeed. Well, well said. It's probably quite analogous to that in many ways. Yes. Um, it's an abnormal diet. We're not flesh eaters, and we have to recognize that, but that's all. Right. So speak, speaking of abnormal, um, I noticed in uh, one of your bios that you'd worked with NASA on yes. Martian food. Yes, right. So so I've, I've seen uh, the Martian with the... Uh, with uh -huh. Matt Damon, so so I yep. know I know how it turns out. We live on potatoes right. grown in, in human feces. Yep. But uh, can you tell us like what 
what the heck was that about? How did that come about? <laughs> yeah, and, right. and what did you discover? Yeah, and don't think that I saw the Martian. I did get a little glimmer from that. Uh, the year was 1988. <clears throat> and um, NASA was, uh, and they still are, contemplating putting long-term space colonists on the moon and on Mars. And back in 1988, uh, the economics were such, and it's probably worse now, uh, but it, back then, to put anything in lower Earth orbit, it cost $16,000 a pound for anything to get up there to escape Earth's gravity. Well, it dawned on them that they probably weren't going to be rocketing 700-pound dairy cows and 80-pound bales of hay up to the moon uh, for their astronauts. That makes for very expensive yogurt. And when it came to the calorie and, and nutrient, nutrient provision for these uh, colonists, it dawned on them that their space colonists were going to have to be, heaven forbid, vegans. And they had no idea what to feed a vegan. Could it even be done? Is, is it even really feasible? And back a year before, I had published a little booklet on vegan nutrition, vegan nutrition, pure and simple. And somehow, one copy of my little booklet found its way to the NASA engineers at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And so I get a call from, from them. They say, Dad, I hear you know something about plant, feeding people on plants. And I said, yeah, I do. So he said, well, we, we're very interested in that subject. All of a sudden, would you like to come down here and, and help us get uh, some type of uh, program together? And uh, am I going to say no when my country calls? So I said, sure. <laughs> so uh, they flew me down to Johnson Space Center. And I spent about 10 days down there, and I, we discussed with their dietitians, with their engineers, uh, with their horticulturists, uh, and we went through all the basic uh, nutrition requirements of calorie and protein, vitamins, minerals, and we looked at what kind of plants are going to pack the most nutritional punch uh, for the inputs, for the water and, um, and other nutritional inputs. And sure enough, came down to potatoes and greens, basically, uh, of uh, some sort and some sort of legume, um, fast-growing lentils, uh, whatever. Um, and and when we did the calculations, carrots would also be very helpful. Some yellow vegetables would be very helpful. Carrots or sweet potatoes if you're growing them. Uh, and with those four plants, uh, you could do very nicely, actually. And uh, so we did all the calculations. They all fit, fit out right as far as the metabolic aspects of it. And the botanists and the engineers were pretty happy with their hydroponic setups and all that stuff. And uh, so they said, okay, we got it, mission accomplished. And they brought in their high-power, high-techy uh, uh, folks to try and turn this into fast-growing foods and preserving and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, but at least I got them started. I stayed in touch with them for several months afterwards, had some nice uh, communications with them. And... Uh, and uh, they moved on to a level way beyond my expertise. But now every time the International Space Station goes over, and I know they're growing their sprouts up there, and when I saw them, when I saw him, and they would plant those potatoes, I said, yes. And uh, so I had a little, little, little bit, a little spark of a contribution to, uh, to our space program. But uh, it's uh, helping them get comfortable with the idea of vegan nutrition in, in, uh, in NASA. 
Wow. And it's, it's fascinating, though, that, you know, it's the way you describe the process of coming up with a solution. I can't imagine anything more reductionist in terms of, you know, getting out your calculator, cal- calculating the nutritional contributions and the soil and water requirements. And yep. yet you, you end up with a whole food plant based diet under, sure. you know, under these extreme constraints. And we're like we're we're under some sort of you know mass illusion that we don't live on a planet with extreme constraints. True, right? Like you know, yeah. like we'll, we'll, how long can we continue living the way we're living as as Westerners as Americans? No, um, not much longer. There, there's no question about it, and that's ultimately my my major beef, if you will, with the paleo philosophy that. As I said, it's a diet of death. It, it's going to, it kills the animals. It kills the people who are going to eat this. And it's going to kill this planet. Are these people truly, with a straight face, advocating, oh, paleo is the best diet. Everybody ought to be eating paleo. Are you seriously advocating a flesh-based diet three times a day for eight billion people, gentlemen and ladies? This is an elitist, arrogant, unsustainable food philosophy. Large-scale animal agriculture is the driving force behind every environmental disaster we face. Deforestation, soil erosion, water pollution, water depletion, global warming. That's why they're cutting down the forest. That's where the, the soil is eroding off corn and soybean fields for cheap cheeseburgers. Most water goes to irrigating alfalfa and corn and soybeans. Most water pollution is off feedlots and herbicide sprayed fields for, for animal flesh. Most Greenhouse gases come from the 80 billion living animals every year on this planet that are slaughtered, every one of them breathing out carbon dioxide, belching out methane, eating grains produced with nitrogen-containing fertilizers that release nitrous oxide. The the three major greenhouse gases are are all from largely from animal agriculture. People say, well, well, the transportation puts out more greenhouse gas. They play these silly numbers games. Oh, don't tell me the cows farting put out more than all the trucks on the road. That line of reasoning dissolves into absurdity with one question. What's in the trucks? Entire agricultural industries in those trucks. Entire restaurant industries in those trucks. Entire fast food industries in those trucks. The meat eating has its tentacles into everything that we see that's that's just destroying this plant. There is no difference between the the truck transportation and the animals on the farm. It's the same malignant process that's killing this planet. And we have to see, as I said earlier, we've used meat eating up. It's time to get off that train. It's destroying this planet. And I tell the audiences, Every time you're in the restaurant, if you're not vegan, and you turn to the waiter or the wait, waitress, wait person and say, I'll have the beef, I'll have the chicken, I'll have the veal, I'll have the lamb. Every time you say those words, your children, your grandchildren's world gets a little hotter and a little drier and a little deader. And we've got to stop pretending that these flesh foods come from the farm somewhere. They come from your children's future your grandchildren's future. Every time I see a little kid in a stroller, I feel like running up and apologizing to them for what we've done to their world and their future. And the first thing that we can do is change our diet. You know, and 
And I urge people to go to the website of Dr. Richard Oppenlander and read his beautiful book, Comfortably Unaware, which is just where the meat and dairy industries want us. And read the book, see the videos on his website, and educate yourself on this issue. But you, you can put solar panels on everybody's house. You can give everybody an electric car. Unless we change our diet, if we keep producing meat like we are, uh, all, all efforts uh, will be for naught. But to change the plant-based diet is the one thing we can all do tomorrow for free. doesn't cost a thing. What is the huge sacrifice we're being asked to make? Order the bean chili instead of the beef chili. That's it. Mm -hmm. With yeah. everything that implies. But that's the huge sacrifice we're being asked to make. Good heavens, people. Your life, your health, your future, your kids' futures depend on it. It's time to leave the beef chili behind. We got to – and it's it's – uh, podcasts like this that will ch do that figure ground reversal in, my, in people's heads where it's, uh, why are you eating a vegan diet? We need to flip it around. Are you still eating meat, man, in this day and age? Why are you still eating that? And that's what we got to do. We got to make it like cigarette smoking and wearing fur. And this podcast will help. So you're practicing good medicine today with me. Well, thank you. And it's funny because <laughs> one of my notes that I wanted to explore with you, and I, I decided not to, but I'll bring it up is sure. the, you know whether you're worried about confirmation bias and that you went vegan first and now you're looking at all the evidence but what I so what I really want to say about that is imagine that you are conferring with the best scientists on the planet about uh, some undiscovered some some uninhabited planet that was exactly like earth and you were trying to figure out if we wanted to colonize it what would our diet be like? And the confirmation bias right now that keeps people from seeing that if we had another Earth and we were going to planet like rational human beings, what our diet would be like, like that's where I see the problem of confirmation bias. Oh, I don't see the problem. If we treat that planet number two like we've done, if we cut down the forest, turn it into grazing land and cropland and run beef cattle and dairy cows and sheep all over, uh, how can we not create the same environmental disaster that we have on this planet? Well, it, this has been the, this should be the definitive answer to any rationality, confirmation by we've done the experiment and it doesn't right. work. Uh, we, we have seen what happens if you, if you turn the billions of people into flesh eaters. We have seen that the waters run with animal manure, the, the, the carbon dioxide, methane builds up in the, uh, uh, in the atmosphere, the ice caps melt, the sea levels rise. This is what happens when you institute large-scale animal agriculture. You want to do it again on another planet? We, we, we see that. Where plants, uh, plant-based economy and nutrition do, reverses that. The forests come back, the soils stabilize, the water's clean, uh, the, uh, the greenhouse gases are taken out of the atmosphere, put back into the trees, uh, the planet heals. Yeah, and it seems so evident that what I don't see where there's room for confirmation bias. We, we've done the experiment. Animal flesh production is fatal to the planet and the people. Right. Well, yeah, as, as, a, as a, a consultant and coach, one of, one of the questions that I ask that can loosen people up is if you had to make this decision today, like, would you choose this job? Would you hire this person today if you had a do over? And that really opens people up because they don't see that the past is not a, a prison for them. Very and, good. 
And so, I th- you know, if we look at it, if, if you take the best scientists in the world, I'm sure the NASA people weren't, you know, Hare Krishna chanting hippies. No, they weren't. And right. they determined that we need to be vegan in, in, at Mars. If you, t- if you just created a blank slate and said, what is the optimal diet for this planet, for human beings, it'd be pretty clear. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. The truth, truth is, is often very, it's usually pretty simple and clear. Absolutely. And so, yeah, the um, uh, well, we'll go ahead. The best minds would have to come to this to the same conclusion, no matter how you look at it. You know, water doesn't run uphill, and, and animal flesh production poisons the planet. You know, we 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 know both those things now, and uh, there's no reason to repeat uh, this dreadful experiment again. So I, I mentioned earlier that um, I've enjoyed a whole bunch of your DVDs and lectures and talks, and I'd like more people to see them because the more people who see them, the, the better conversations I have in the world and the better Good. the world is. How can people find you, follow you, and consume more of, of your generous wisdom? Well, thank you. Uh, I'll certainly tell them, and, and ultimately go to drclapper.com, my website. It's all spelled out, uh, no spaces, D-O-C-T-O-R-K-L-A-P-E-R.com. And go to the answers section. I've got a whole bunch of uh, articles on paleo diets and uh, healthy nutrition. Got a whole bunch of videos to see there. And I want to, and it's so timely that we're having this conversation. For the past eight years, I've been... Uh, working at True North Health Center. I've loved every one of those years. Um, but the reality, and I've learned a lot about applied nutritional medicine, uh, but the reality is that seeing patients one at a time is too slow for the work that needs to be done uh, right now. It's a matter of education of the medical profession and the public. And so as of January 1st, I'm leaving my dear True North. I'll stay friends with them. Uh, but I'm, I, I can't, uh, uh, I need to have my own time for some very important projects. I need to create a course on applied plant-based nutrition for practicing physicians. Ladies and colleagues, this is what you're seeing here. Here's the pathology behind it. Here's what you need to be telling your patients. Here's how to get your patients healthy. I need to do a webinar course for medical students currently in medical school and hold up that plant-based nutrition nutrition as they learn their physiology and they learn pathology and they learn uh, these various medical specialties. What, what, it's what these diseases are from what these people are eating. Once you understand that, then, then there's that click of reality and the, ah, it makes sense to me now. And so I need to do these webinars for medical students. I need to write a book or two for the public on uh, and making plant-based nutrition work for them. I need to do uh, weekly Q&As uh, with the public um, for, uh, on various subjects from raising kids to athletics. Um, I really need to shift um, to the electronic platform, and this is going to be a year of high-output creativity. So I'm inviting folks, get on my website and get on my mailing list and stay tuned because I'm going to be producing uh, works that you can take to your doctor uh, either f- both a full book and just single page handouts saying, Doc, I got Crohn's disease, I got diabetes, I got hypertension. Here's uh, how about uh, uh, going along with this uh, treatment program. And, and I really want to change the medical profession and change how we interact with our doctors and wake up the doctors. So that's going to be my focus. And uh, you'll, you can stay tuned to all that on the website. 
And I'm going to be doing, you'll be able to interact with me once a week. I'm going to have big uh, Q&A sessions, and you can send in your questions, and we'll get the questions answered. So I want to get closer to all my uh, viewers and listeners, and so do it through the website, drclapper.com. Wow. It's, uh, your, your, your excitement and energy is uh, infectious. Really good. Good. So, and people can get on, get on the web, get on your mailing list from your website, drclapper.com. I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode if people just want to go to plant yourself and and, and do a search for for your name there. And boy, that's that's so exciting because the you know this this idea of there's a certain point at which we need to just speed things up, right? Because the the forces of death are speeding up. They sure are. We can't we can't. you know, standing still is, is, is going not backwards. An op- not an option. Absolutely, sir. We both agree with that. And, and don't think that uh, I, was, I was serious. This is a high-grade form of medicine we're practicing. As we educate your listeners, uh, if, we, if lights are going on in people's heads and hearts as they're listening to our words, yay, we've done some high-grade healing here. And, uh, and the world and these people who heard it will be healthier for it. So I'm very grateful to you, Howard. It's a fine service you're providing. Well, thank you. I feel I feel healed myself. I feel uh, I got a big smile on my face. We're, for folks who are just listening to this on the regular podcast, where we we had a successful video recording, which will be up on YouTube, so you can see I'm smiling ear to ear, and so grateful for your energy and your spirit and your generosity and your time, and and your your stepping up as a warrior at this uh, exciting opportunity for our planet. So, Dr. Michael Clapper, thank you so much for everything. You are most welcome, Howard. Hopefully our paths will cross on the lecture path before too long. You're a fine man. I, I miss a, a hug and a smile from you, so I look forward to our next connection. Me too. Thank <laughs> you, Michael. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know how to do that, just go to plantyourself.com slash review. For more information about the Big Change program led by me and Josh Lajani, which again is starting up in January 2018, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 246. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 245 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the weekly-ish email newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and also get the Cheat Day Blues Report at plantyourself.com slash cheat day. Hey, a quick word about transcripts. We've got a new one for the show, thanks to Kelly Machia. It's uh, for Plant Yourself Podcast 221 with Dr. Michelle McMacken. So you can go there and you can read the transcript or you can download it in beautiful PDF format. And if you would like to support the podcast and if you have more time and typing chops than money, consider donating a transcription. And this will allow us to spread our advocacy to the deaf and hearing impaired and also to provide a convenient format for everyone to consume the content if they're not into listening or watching. If you're looking for another way to support the show, you can become a patron with an ongoing monthly contribution, and you can do that at patreon.com slash plantyourself. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to help sustain the show because knowing that there's a chunk of money coming in every single month gives me kind of a little bit of breathing room in my ability to, to devote time to it, to not have to worry about, can I make my nut this month? Can I pay the mortgage? Can I 
afford to devote the time to the podcast that it requires. Right now, it's like 90% me funding the podcast. And so I would love to shift some of that responsibility over to the listeners, to the audience that, that uh, presumably gets something out of it from listening uh, every single week. All right, let's talk about garden news. There's very little in the garden that I'm involved with right now. Um, my wife is doing a lot of work trying to keep the bees alive. Um, it's been a bad several decades for bees, as you may know. And so lots of people are stepping up to see if we can, uh, you know, sort of crowdsource a solution. And she's got seven hives in the back there, and we're trying to keep them alive with uh, sugar water and fondant and uh, keeping out the, uh, the various pests that uh, can destroy a hive. And, of course, when they do well, um, our garden, our neighbor's garden, and the world does, does better. In running news, I seem to have broken a toe, the uh, fourth toe on my right foot, and I didn't do it by anything heroic or extreme. I was just running with two pairs of socks on because my feet were cold at uh, 6 in the morning, and somehow that second pair of socks jammed something in, and I think I got a stress fracture. So I'm taking it easy. Um, I've done maybe 15, 20 miles this past week, not very much, and I'm avoiding the longer runs until it feels better because I would still like to do the uh, Louisiana Marathon in Baton Rouge in the middle of January. All right, it's thank you time. Thanks to Will Ridenauer, musician extraordinaire, for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, at the show, as the show's theme music. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful dulcet tones. And, of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Tielsen, Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rumpus Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Benham, Gila Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, a plant, Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzals, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. <gasps> Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikowski of Plant Power for Health, and Karen Smith for your generous support of the podcast. So you notice it's taking me three breaths right now, so i got a lot of space left on that third breath if you'd like to add your name to the list. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.